Second Kings chapter eight. Second Kings chapter eight. We continue in our series on the Lord God of Elijah, and it's really amazing as we go through these Old Testament stories and we look back and see God working and, and, and how practical some of these things are for our situation today. And uh, I have to say, me personally, as I've looked at every single message, I've found something of practical value for me. And so, so tonight... We pick up another story beginning in verse number seven, and uh, I, I think we'll just we'll just read the whole story down through verse fifteen, and that way you'll have the picture in your mind, and then we'll we'll sort of take it apart and talk about it. Verse seven. And Elisha came to Damascus, and Benhadad the king of Syria was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come hither. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael took, uh, or went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels' burden, camels burden and came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go and say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why weepest, uh, my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. And Haziel said, But what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do such great things? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So he departed from Elijah and came to his master and said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shalt surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died and Haziel reigned in his stead. I want you to notice the very first word of verse number 7. And a lot of times we miss little words that are very meaningful. The word and connects this story with that which has gone before that we looked at last week. Now remember in the former story we saw a faithful woman. But now we see an unfaithful man. In the former story, we see that a woman's property was restored, but here we see a king's throne is taken away. So here we see a contrast in these stories, and uh, the message tonight has to do with an unfaithful servant. It begins with the inquiry of the king, and... Uh, 
we see this contrast between the two, and the king now is seriously ill. And, and, and again, whenever you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, and we're not going to do that, but when we go back there, you see that Israel's king. Now, remember, we're talking tonight about the king of Syria. But in chapter number 1, the story is about Israel's king, and he is seriously ill, and he inquired of the heathen god Beelzebub. Now, get that. The king of Israel, God's people, he's the king, the man in charge, the one they look up to, and he is sick, and instead of going to a man of God, he goes to Beelzebub for advice. But here we see a heathen king who is sick, and he's inquiring here of a Jewish prophet as to whether he would live or not. In other words, what I take from that is the pagan king is acting like an Israelite, and the king of Israel is acting like a pagan. You know, kind of, kind of reminds me of what we see in the world today. We think about so many people. Were you to get out here on a street corner and take a survey, uh, you'd find that a great many people would say that they, yeah, they are of the Christian faith. They're they're Christians, and yet, by way of many different surveys that have been taken. It is a proven fact based on their own testimony of what they do, what they believe, what they think. It is a proven fact that there is almost zero difference between those that make no profession of faith and those that claim that Christ is their Savior. So we live in a day where we have basically lost our distinction. Our difference is our distinction. And if we're going to be a witness to the world, if we're going to be effective in reaching them for Christ, there must be a difference. And when I talk about a difference, I'm not talking about being different just for the sake of being different. So we'll stand out. You know, we're different. And some people do that in order to make themselves seem more spiritual than other people are. And uh, there might be a number of different reasons, but we don't want to be different just to be different. We want to be different because we're following what the Bible teaches, and that makes us different because we're living according to a different standard, you see. So that's what's going on. The king is sick. He is inquiring of the Jewish prophet, and uh, he's concerned about his health. And I've noticed when people aren't concerned about anything else in the world, they get concerned about their health, especially especially when they think they might die. You know, death has a way of really getting our attention. There are people, you know, that have zero concern about spiritual things. They never read their Bible, have no interest in Christ whatsoever, really have no concern for other people. And uh, all, of, all of a sudden, though, whenever, whenever they think that they might die, all of a sudden, they begin to get really concerned about that. You know, it's it's just live fast, die hard. You know, that's kind of the philosophy of a lot of people until they're on their sickbed thinking they might die. And keep in mind, this is the king. I, I mean, this he, he is the top dog. He's ahead of everybody else. All of his possessions, his authority, all of his power and everything else. And now he is sick and he knows that all of that 
is about to be lost. And then you see the person toward he toward whom he directs this inquiry, and and it's Elisha. Now, earlier, if you go back to chapter number 6 and verse 13, you'll see that he had tried to capture the prophet. Now he's calling for him. But back there, he wanted to capture him. You'll remember that, you know, he thought there was a, he thought there was a, traitor in the camp there was somebody there revealing the secrets and his strategy and his planning and what have you and so he is sending out you know a bunch of men trying to find uh, Elisha and something something has happened that enabled Elisha to win the respect and the confidence of this heathen king you know I don't know all of the details and everything that might have been going through his mind but you've got to admit that's Quite an accomplishment now for a heathen king all of a sudden to have that kind of confidence in the man of God. And to me, the the remarkable thing about it uh, is the fact that Elisha did not uh, mock him. He could, oh, you know, he could say, oh, you want me now, huh? You didn't pay any attention to what I said before. And you have no concern about, uh, about our people. I don't have any time for you. Now, he could have done that. He could have mocked him. He could have said, you know, it's about time you woke up and realized that we have, you know, the only true and the living God and you people are so wrong in your philosophy and so forth. Or he could have just ignored him. He could, he could have just said, look, I don't have time for this. This is foolishness. I mean, uh, uh, he, he's, he's beyond help. He could have done any of those things, but he didn't. Let me tell you, one of the most difficult things for, for a pastor, and it's true for anybody, any member of the church, and that is to minister lovingly to people that oppose you, people that are against you, people that speak evil of you, and yet, if we're going to be used of God, we've got to care about people that don't care about us. And it, you, you might be surprised, but there's some people who don't care about you. <laughs> they might be in the same church. And it might be, you know, they ought to care about you, but they don't. They don't really care about you. Some people will hide that fact. Other people, you know, they don't try to hide it at all. They just want... You know, they don't care anything about you. And yet we have the same responsibility, the obligation to minister to those people and to do so lovingly. And, the, you know, the thing that helps us, I think, more than anything is to remember that God loved us in that while we were yet sinners. I mean, he, he didn't say, look, you've got to straighten up and fly right, get your act together, and then I'll love you. Then I might consider saving you. It's while we were yet sinners. And, and that is the attitude that we need to take into everything we do for Christ because there are people, you, you know, that do not love us, and, and we have an obligation to love them nevertheless, you see. And so here Elisha is responding to the needs of a man who doesn't care anything about him whatsoever. Now notice that the means of the inquiry, this is not a direct conversation at this point between the king and and Elisha, but rather the king has entrusted 
the message to a servant. He's had the servant to go to Elisha and uh, inquire of Elisha. You know, even a king has to depend on somebody else sometimes, right? Uh, he's sick. He can't get up and go. And so he is sending his servant to go get the word from the man of God. We're all dependent upon somebody, whether we want to admit it or not. We all need someone. We were born into this world that way, in need. That little helpless baby needs the attention, you know, of mother. And uh, all through life, we need others. And others need us. And so here is a man entrusted with a mission, and he goes to the prophet, and we notice here the insight of the man of God. In verse number 10, we see that he knew the king's condition. Notice what he said in verse number 10. Elisha said unto him, Go and say, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. Now, there are some folks that have that have misunderstood this verse, and, and they have said, I'm talking about commentaries and preachers that have written about this, and they said that Elisha lied and that the king did not recover. Well, that's as silly as it gets, but that's exactly what some people say. Elisha was right when he said, Thou mayest certainly recover. And uh, the king was recovering from his illness. I mean, you know, everything would have been all right. But he would die from another cause. And verse 15, of course, speaking about his assassination. And Elisha knows this. He knew the servant's heart. And, and, and boy, I think about that servant standing there as he's hearing what Elisha is saying. And, and the prophet knew him better than he knew himself. Notice how the story unfolds here. And, and as Elisha relays to him the information, the prophet says, What am I, a dog? You know, I, I wouldn't do anything like that. He didn't know his own heart. But Elisha did. And uh, I... I I don't know, I just personally feel that Elisha probably knew more than he really wanted to know. He really didn't even want to know this, but he did. And, and, and notice, he, he couldn't even speak. I mean, he was speechless. He just, he's just staring at this servant without uttering a word. It's just, he's dumbfounded. Remember, he knows what's going to happen. God is telling him. Yeah, the king will recover, but he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to be put to get death. And oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to become the king. You see? So the prophet knows all about this. And then having stared at that servant for a while, he begins to weep. He begins to weep. And uh, the servant asks, why? Why are you weeping? He was weeping because he knew the future. And you look there in verse number 12, and it's very clear what was breaking his heart. He said, I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. And he goes on and explains what he means. You see, knowing the plight of his people moved him to tears. And uh, 
Boy, it ought to be so easy to make an application there. Whenever we see the condition of our country, the condition of our churches and what have you, the situation that we're in here in America, and the prophet sees that, and he is weeping, and we look around and we see that, and i got to tell you, I wonder, I wonder, where are the tears? Where are the tears? And uh, the prophet is weeping because he knows what's going on, you see. You know, we need to have insight as to the times that we live. You remember David's men at Hebron whenever they assembled there to assist David. And it tells us that they had an understanding of the times to know what to do. And we need that. We need to understand the times that we live in. And look, it's, we don't have the gift of prophecy. None of us do. We, we have no idea. We're not able to look down the road and predict the future or anything else. But we have the Bible. And the Bible describes this present age in which we live. It reveals what is ahead. I, I remember 40-some years ago, I guess I preached a message entitled, Tribulation Shadows. And I talked about the fact that the coming of the Lord is intimate. He, he, could, he could come at any moment, any time. And it's been that way since He left. We've been living in the last days since the Lord ascended back into heaven. The disciples expected Him to come back even in their lifetime. He could come back at any time. People talk about the signs of His coming. Well, there are no signs pointing to the rapture when He comes and, uh, you know, the saints of God are raptured out of this world. But there are many signs related to His coming at the revelation, which is at the end of the tribulation period, that seven-year period. In other words, you can look at the events that are described in the tribulation period and they're like mountain peaks of prophecy that you see one after another. And, and you know, if you're knowledgeable of the Bible and the tribulation period begins and you know this, you literally can predict what is going to happen next. In other words, you know that the Antichrist is going to enter into a covenant with the Jews. He's going to break the covenant after three and a half years. And so you can just follow right along and know what's going to happen. We don't, we don't have that information that we can daily predict what is going to happen or even year by year. But we can certainly look at what Paul wrote about the times in which we live. And in the last days, we know what is going to transpire. We know what it's going to be like. So we get a picture of what we can expect society to be. Back many years ago, especially the Southern Baptists, they were post-millennialists. They believed that through the effort of the church that eventually through our effort that we could usher in the kingdom of God here on this earth, that we could create sort of a utopia, a spiritual utopia here on this earth. After World War I and World War II and what have you, some of them began changing their mind. They began to realize, thankfully, they began to realize that the world's not getting better, but it's getting worse. And it's still getting worse day by day. It's downhill. And folks, I don't care what you do, you're not going to change the direction of the world. It's going to be downhill until Jesus comes. 
And the prophet knew exactly what was going to happen. Yes, the king may recover, but he's going to die. You're going to kill him. You're going to become the king. What is thy servant? That's enough to gag you for him to say that. Uh, he now consider himself the servant of Elijah. Thy servant, a dog? Well, you know, you're worse than a dog. Amen. You know, dogs just, they live by instinct, but what man does is motivated by the lust of his heart. And whenever we look at this servant, we see several things. First of all, he disregarded the prophet. I'm glad. And you know, there's a lot of confusion about this issue of God's foreknowledge and predestination and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of it, folks, that look, we don't understand it's far beyond what we can comprehend. But I do know this. God's knowledge of the future never interferes with man's freedom of choice. You see, if it did, God couldn't hold us accountable. In other words, if God just said, well, this is what's going to happen and we didn't have any freedom of choice in the matter, well, you know, we can't help ourselves. We just did it because we couldn't do anything else. So we have a choice to make. And so here is a man that could not justify his actions on the basis of God's foreknowledge, and neither can you. Amen. He couldn't say he hadn't been warned, right? Elisha told him exactly what was going to happen. We think about our nation again, and I'm telling you, our nation cannot say that it has not been worn. You go all the way back to our founding fathers, for example. You read the documents that they wrote. You look at the quotes in the history books and what have you, and you find one wordy, uh, warning after another, after another, after another. Because they knew. What do you have here? We have a republic, if you can keep it, if you can keep it. And boy, let me tell you, we are in the struggle of our life right now. And so whenever we trace our history as a nation, and it's important that we think about that, because here's what we learn. We learn that we don't learn anything. We don't. We just don't listen. So here is a man that disregarded what the prophet said. You know, he could have said, oh my, I'm so sorry that you think so ill of me that I would assassinate the king and become the king. And, and I, yeah, I, to be honest, I even had that thought, but boy, I want to get my heart right with God. No, no, he, he just totally disregarded the warning. Now, he goes back to the king, and having disregarded the prophet, he goes back and he deceives the king. He comes strutting in there like, boy, yep, I saw him. I got the answer. I heard what he said. And uh, he gave the report. You know, the worst, the worst enemy you can have is a traitor within the camp. And here is a man that is taking advantage of the king's trust. And, um, boy, today it seems like loyalty is a thing of the past. It's lacking in just about every area of life. The king has entrusted this man with this important mission. Go to the man of God, find out, you know, whether I'm going to live or whether I'm going to die. Well, you know, had he gone back there and just stopped at that point, he's disregarded the prophet, he's deceived the king, but if he had stopped there, 
everything, you know, might have been all right. But the next thing he does is to devise a clever scheme. He's making it appear that the king died of natural causes. Takes a thick cloth, he gets it wet with water, he puts it over the king's face, and the king dies. And he can call in the guards and what have you and say, Oh, how terrible! Our blessed king just passed away. And the truth of the matter is, he, he killed him, assassinated the king. Now, if we had time to read on, go to chapter 10 and chapter 13, we would learn that he, having become the new king, declared war on Israel just like Elisha said he would do. You see, that man did not know his own heart. Whenever Elisha said that, he couldn't believe what he heard about himself. And now we see him acting out exactly what had been predicted. You know, the Bible tells us the heart is, de is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And none of us really can. We, we, we don't know the depths of depravity in our own heart. And that, that, that's a scary thought because so much of the time we make decisions and we do things based on what we think in our heart and it's altogether wrong sometimes. What a sad story this is to think about the traitor within that assassinated his very own king for personal gain. Now, look at that story and I have to ask myself, what, what do I learn from that? Well, what, do you, what do you get out of it? What, what difference does it make to me? How does it affect my life? You know, I look back and I read it and I think, well, what a sad story, but uh, how does it affect us? And the five things that entered my mind when I thought about that. Number one, you've got to be careful who you trust. The Apostle John said, For many deceivers are entered into the world. Many deceivers are entered into the world. And uh, a lot of sincere people are terribly misled. Sometimes they're misled by those that intentionally deceive, and sometimes they're misled, you know, by those that might, you know, be sincere in offering their advice and their guidance, but, but they're wrong because sincerity is not a, it's not a safe test for our, for our behavior. We can't base anything just on whether we're sincere or not. You can think you're ten foot tall, but, you know, that doesn't change the height of your stature. You can think you can fly, but you can't. We need to learn to be careful about who we trust. The king trusted the wrong man. It would have been an entirely different story had he not trusted this man. Secondly, we need to be conscious of our selfish desires. This man's personal ambition prompted him to sin. In other words, there was within him this desire to become king, that is to control others. And it caused him to murder a man. 
That very same thing has been the downfall of a lot of people, that lust within their heart. James speaks about that, you know, that, that the sin is created, as it were, from the lust that is within our heart. It doesn't need an outside source. It doesn't need somebody knocking on the door saying, I want you to do this or I want you to do that. No, no, it's knocking on the door of your heart. There is lust that is already there. And in order to, you know, to get what we want, and sometimes we become so desperate, and I've, I've just got to have this to be happy. I've got to have that in order to feel like I'm fulfilled in life. We'll do things that we never imagined that we would do. Well, I, maybe the best example I can think of just off the top of my head is Absalom. Can you imagine Absalom setting himself against his own daddy and trying to overthrow the kingdom? And so he goes out here and gets all of his cronies together, gets all of the young guys, all of those of his generation. And he starts to complain and so forth about the present administration. And we need changes around here. You vote for me and you put me in office. You know, you make me the king, blah, 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 blah. And for somebody to become a turncoat to their own flesh and blood, what an awful thing that is. And yet many times we allow the lust of our heart to cause us to hurt people that, you know, that love us the most and people that we ought to love. And so we need to be conscious of our own selfish desires. It's so easy to look back at this servant and to say, what a dirty, rotten devil he was. How horrible. What a terrible guy. But every one of us needs to think and to be conscious about our own selfish desires within us because they can lead us to places that we never planned to go and places that we never thought we would be. Thirdly, this story teaches us that we need to be committed to the Word of God. Elisha's warning should have been enough to restrain him, but it didn't. It should have been enough. It should have awakened him. You know, he, he could have thought, you know, Elisha, I, I came here to get this information. I'm, you know, I've just become aware of, 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 of the possibility of what I might do out of, a, out of this drive, this desire to get what I want. And and, and, and I know I shouldn't be that kind of a person. No, no. He just brushed it all aside. Boy, if we're going to avoid that mistake, we have to be committed to the Word of God because it is our only sure guide. It's the only thing that we can depend upon. Number four, we ought to learn from this to be concerned about others. I can't get over the part of the story where, where Elisha is moved to tears. He's broken hearted. He was, as God revealed that, as I said a while ago, he's just, he just all of a sudden gets this blank look. His countenance changes. He just stares at that servant. Must have been an uncomfortable moment for the servant and have that old prophet just staring a hole through him. And then all of a sudden the tears begin to roll down his cheeks. Why? That's what the servant wanted to know. Why are you crying? Because I know what's going to happen to my people. And it made him weep. And the question is, what does it take to make you cry? What does it take to make you weep? Think about that for a little while. 
I knew I was going to get to this point of the message before I ever started, and I thought, and I thought to myself, I, you know, I want to avoid getting off on something, and I just can't do it. I was thinking last week, and I was thinking again this morning, and, and I know Bev and I was talking about this going home. We know from over 50 years of experience, and I've often said, you know, on big days, special days, I, I don't care whether it's Christmas, Easter, whatever it is, church anniversary, you got a lot of people there. There's something about that that just kind of freezes everybody up or something. It's very seldom, I'm telling you, very seldom that you see uh, anything happen. You don't, you don't, you don't see any, any results. But it's not just then. Sometimes Brother Kenneth and I, last week we was talking about that very same thing. Brother John and I, we were talking about it. John came up to me and, and he, he brought up the subject, you know, that the days and times that we live in. And it's so very seldom that you see any response, regardless of what you could preach. You could preach Mary had a little lamb or you could preach the greatest message that you ever preached in all of your life. And it's just like the invitation time comes and, and it's like we're covered in ice or something. Now, I'm saying all of this for a reason. I'm not saying it because I'm discouraged, because I'm not. I'm not discouraged. I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that we live in such a time that we can know that we have unsaved people in the service, dismiss the service and go our way, and not one tear being shed, and, and, and have sick people. And I have to wonder to myself, we talk about pray for this one and that one and the other one and so forth. We need to pray for them. They're in really a bad shape and so forth. I got to wonder, when do we when do we pray? Is there never a time to to see people on their knees at the end of the service, praying to God and weeping out of concern for other people? Bev and I have somebody special, uh, especially on our heart that we're, we're talking about this person this afternoon. And boy, the devil is fighting. And Bev shared the gospel with this person. And ever since then, the devil's been working overtime trying to keep this person from being saved. And it, it, it ought to break our heart. And I have to ask myself, when, when do we weep? Elisha could see what was going to happen and he's broken hearted and he's weeping. And it's kind of like we've reached the place where Jeremiah said and the Lord said, you know, of the people, he said they can't even blush. You can't even embarrass them. You can't even, they can't even blush anymore. And we just get beyond the point of, of feeling. Number five. Number five. We ought to learn from this story the need for courage. Elisha spoke the truth even when it wasn't popular. A few weeks ago on Wednesday night, I spoke about confronting a culture of confusion. Confronting a culture of confusion. It was from the book of Acts and talked about the early church. Confronting a culture of of confusion. We never have lived in a more confusing culture than what we see today. And as Christian people, people who know what the solution is, people who have the answer to the problems of the world, we need the courage to confront 
the world with the truth. And as I said earlier, Elisha did not mock him. He did not ignore him. But he had the courage to speak the truth. And that's exactly what you and I need, that kind of courage to speak the the truth in love, absolutely. But we need to speak the truth. One of the things that makes life so very difficult is knowing that there are some things that we can't change and we can't control that we just have to live with. That's the way it was in Babylon. They couldn't change that. God said, I'm going to put you in Babylon. You're going to be there 70 years. You might as well build houses, plant vineyards, grow your crops. You're going to be there 70 years. Make the best out of a bad situation. Bloom where you're planted. That It is what it is. Live with it. That's what God was saying to them. And Elisha knows the king's going to die. This joker is going to take over. My people are going to be slaughtered the little children slaughtered the women with children will be ripped apart he knows that's going to happen and he knows he can't change that he can't do anything about it it is what it is that that, that's what's going to happen i don't know uh you know for some they might have said you know i I've, i've just this ain't fun anymore I, I, I think I'll just resign from being a prophet. I, I'm going fishing. I, I, I'm, I'm out here. I just give up. And I'm telling you folks, sometimes I realize it's hard to keep going whenever you know that what you're doing is not going to change things. You've got to live with it regardless. But difficulty never relieves us of our responsibility. We've got a job to do. Look, it's not my job to bless the message. I can't do that. I can only deliver the message. And the same's true of you. There are certain people that you can't help. I don't care what you do. You can't help them. You'll never change them. It is what it is. And you just have to live with it like it is, whether it's you know good, bad, or whatever. And we need to make sure that we live as we ought to. That we bloom where we're planted and live like we ought to, regardless of what the situation around us is. It's not easy, but it's possible. The Apostle Paul proved that. Well, you think about the church at Corinth and, you know, that bunch of rascals, so many of them, they, they were over and over and over again critical of Paul. They... He was actually their best friend, and they didn't know it, and and yet they called him a liar. They said he doesn't keep his commitments. He said he was coming, and he didn't, and blah, 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 blah. And yet Paul said that I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Boy, that's, what a powerful Christian testimony that is. He's saying, I'm not going to let what you do affect what I do. I'm going to love you even if you don't love me. 
Moses did the same thing whenever they complained against him. Instead of resigning, he just stayed right there leading those people. And that's what Elisha did. Elisha didn't give up because life was difficult. Don't you give up. God will give you the courage you need to get through whatever it is that you're facing in life. He did it back then. He can still do it today. Don't give up. Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, thank You for sometimes through the truth of Your Word revealing just how how weak we really are, how susceptible that we are to to doing things that we maybe never imagined, things that we thought we wouldn't, and uh, and yet due to the lust that is in our heart, the desire to get what we want, sometimes we're led astray. And we thank you for the warnings that you've given us. And God help us to not be like that unfaithful servant, a man who betrayed his very own king, a man who literally butchered the Jewish people. Lord, help us rather to listen to the truth of your word and protect ourselves from temptation and help us, Lord, as Elisha, to have the courage to stand up and to speak the truth and to do our best to minister to people that would even want to do us harm. And Lord, as we think about the condition, not only of our nation, but the condition of many of our church members, you know, that are sick and people that have problems and needs in their life, God, forgive us for being, forgive me, Lord, for being so callous, so cold, so hard-hearted that sometimes that we can talk about those things and even pray about those things and yet, and yet never, never shed a tear because of it. Lord, forgive us. Break our hearts and do whatever you have to do to make us usable servants in your kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and Tim's going to lead us in a song and, and you let God speak to your heart and you do as he would have you. It's 428.